Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is ValueSide for the weekend. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit ValueSide.com. Well, today, the correlation between stimulus checks and inflation, understanding urban warfare and what it means for Ukraine, and why Apple Computer has no layoffs. That's right, it's the Week in Review. The big economic news of the week was the announcement on Friday that the economy added better than half a million new jobs. At first blush, stunning news as this helped drop the unemployment rate to a mere 3.4%, the lowest level since 1969. A remarkable performance by the labor markets. But wait, there's more. It turns out, as Zero Hedge and others have been warning, that most of the good news here was due to some statistical adjustments and not necessarily to a real employment boom. Now, it took markets a couple of hours to figure all this out, statistical adjustments being a complicated thing. But by the afternoon, all the major markets had turned down where they ended the day. Here at ValueSide, this week we discuss the uncanny correlation between stimulus checks and inflation, then why urban warfare versus traditional open field battles makes such a difference in viewing Ukraine, and why there are no layoffs at Apple Computer, and a look at how the Federal Reserve is doing in their battle with inflation. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, as we take a look at the week just passed. There's a remarkable correlation between the current bout of inflation and those stimulus checks that we all received a couple of years ago. What makes this so critical and timely is that the Federal Reserve will meet this week to determine our next interest rate setting, and their decision will be based, at least in part, on where this inflation came from. Now, Wall Street is convinced that once again the Fed will raise interest rates, and each time the Fed does raise rates, they repress the economy. So this nearly year-long campaign toward higher interest rates has suppressed economic activity at a time when we are particularly vulnerable to an economic slowdown or recession. What if raising interest rates right now is the wrong action for the Fed to take? That this is not traditional financial overheating and excess demand? What if these government stimulus programs caused current inflation? That's my thesis. Now, before we begin, a couple of ground rules. First, we'll use the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. We can find this measure in the rise in prices, and in inflation if you will, in the GDP report released last week. Let's not quibble here on this particular reading for inflation. It is what it is. The PCE index hit a high last June of nearly 7%, and in this latest report, came in at a 5% annual inflation rate. And the PCE index is the measure of inflation that the Fed will use to set interest rates. Now, my next point is a subtle one, but it's extremely important. And it has to do with the way that we view this inflation index. Most of us have seen the rise in inflation as presented in our first chart. It shows that inflation is constantly rising, with the left side much lower than the right side of the chart. So that must mean that inflation is getting worse and worse, right? Well, 
Not really. In investing, we call this kind of a chart a mountain chart. And in one sense, it does show the compounding effect of inflation over time. For instance, it shows that a $2015 is worth more than a $2023 because the $2023 is reduced by inflation. Unfortunately, inflation's a given in our economy. Inflation is always and forever eating away at our purchasing power. We have a systemic problem with inflation, but that's not the Fed's concern today, and it's different from where we're addressing things. The Fed is concerned with the rate of change in inflation. The Fed has repeatedly said that they would be delighted if inflation was at an annual rate of just 2%. They've made that their price target. So going back to our chart, we will always see the left side of the chart lower than the right side. Unfortunately, there is always going to be inflation in our system. We, and the Fed, would like to see the acceleration in current inflation slow. In other words, we're looking for a decline in the rate of change in inflation. So let's take a look at another chart. It is a chart that shows inflation's rate of change quarter by quarter. However, before we look at that chart, let me remind you that we all received those stimulus checks. The IRS directly deposited stimulus checks into taxpayer bank accounts in beginning in April of 2020. Stimulus 1 totaled $1.9 trillion. The second stimulus check hit bank accounts beginning in December of 2020 and took a couple of months to complete this stimulus package. In total, $900 billion was distributed. Finally, the IRS sent out a third and final stimulus in March of 2021. Total distribution in this package was $1.9 trillion. So in total, IRS and Treasury sent nearly $5 trillion directly to taxpayers around the country. That's a $5 trillion flood of cash into an economy that each year has a total income of only a little over $20 trillion. All those extra dollars have had a tremendous impact on prices. So that was three tranches of stimulus beginning in April of 2020, then December, and finally March of 2021. So now let's look at our second chart, taking into consideration that there's a lag time between the beginning of IRS distribution and the eventual hitting of cash in your account. And there may also have been other delays between you receiving funds and actually spending the money. Now this new chart shows the rate of change from the month before. Note, tremendous change in Q3 of 2020. Suddenly inflation skyrocketed. Until then, we saw no higher change quarter to quarter than 1%. You can go back for years and years before and see that inflation never increased by more than 1% for any quarter. But suddenly, in that third quarter of 2020, just as we begin spending the stimulus checks, more than ever, inflation roars ahead by 4% a perfect correlation with those first stimulus checks. Again, in the first quarter of 2021, we see another big jump in inflation coming at two and a half times the average rate. Again, a perfect correlation with those second stimulus checks, which went out beginning in late December of the year before. The final jump in inflation 
came in the second quarter of 2021. And again, it correlates with the stimulus checks sent out beginning in March of 2021. Since all this activity, inflation has returned to its average rate of increase at 1% or less per quarter, with a slight deviation in the Q1 of last year. That is, until we reach the third quarter of 2022. Then, the rate of increase in inflation drops through the floor. In one of the most significant declines ever, outside of a major recession or depression, the rate of change in inflation declined by nearly 4%. And this latest quarter, just reported in the latest GDP report, shows inflation is down by more than 1.5% for the quarter. In other words, inflation is dropping like a stone. So let's sum all this up. That first look of inflation, the mountain chart, is like the odometer on your car. It tells how far you've gone, how many miles you've traveled to reach your destination. It's a handy tool, but it is limited. The second chart, the rate of change in inflation, is like your car's speedometer. It's the primary instrument you use when driving. You know, for instance, that you're coming to a stop as the speedometer approaches zero. Today, we know that the inflation speedometer is slowing and slowing rapidly. Soon, we will be coming to a stop in inflation, at least below the Fed's 2% target rate, with the result of a reduction in economic activity and the risk of a real recession. Well, today, Ukraine and the urban battlefield. Here in America, there seems to be a growing view that Russia's military is weak and ineffective. Based on current fighting in Ukraine, and supported by the American media, large portions of Americans seem to view the Russian army as, frankly, easy to defeat. The thinking is that Russia is making slow progress in gaining new territory. After initial gains in the southeastern portion of Ukraine, Russia, to the American eye, appears to be bogged down with further progress slowing. A notable exception has been the recent success in capturing the strategic city of Solidar. This thinking, however, is dangerous. In making this assessment, my fellow Americans are overlooking the critical role that the battlefield makes in any war. Modern, unrestricted warfare occurs in many different locations, representing different terrains and presenting different challenges. For Americans, there has grown an almost mythic belief in an antiseptic war, a war fought with little loss of life, at least on our part, and one which resolves quickly, of course with our side winning. Perhaps the best example of this kind of warfare was the 1999 bombing campaign in Kosovo. This was a campaign conducted by NATO, but in reality represented mainly the efforts of the Americans. Its stated aim was to prevent ethnic cleansing of the Albanian minority by the Serbs, although this assertion was questionable. Then-President Bill Clinton ruled out the use of any American ground troops. So the campaign consisted entirely of the use of U.S. bombing raids flown at high altitude to avoid any anti-aircraft, and the result was that few, if any, Americans were placed at risk. Now, the other war that may be on American minds currently, 
was the four-month campaign that decimated the Iraqi army. We well remember the shock and awe campaign in which American tanks overwhelmed the enemy in a marvel of force and distance covered. It was the late 20th century version of the German Blitzkrieg. Although the Americans did suffer losses, the speed and decisive nature of the battle assured those back home that wars can be won quickly. And thus the myth of the antiseptic war grew. Americans saw that there were certain types of air wars that could be fought with little or no risk of life, although whether they could achieve their objective was still left an open question. And Americans saw that there were certain kinds of conventional warfare, warfare involving battle tanks, air support, and high-tech instrumentation that could overwhelm an enemy, even an enemy with one of the most significant armies in the world, Iraq. But while we saw the highlights of the Kosovo and Iraqi wars, the American battlefield victories may have missed the follow-ups. While Kosovo was virtually riskless, it made little progress. And while the Iraqi conventional warfare was concluded in just four months, it took eight long years for America to finally disengage from that conflict. While we call the entire time that American soldiers were in field the Iraqi War, and that's entirely appropriate, as Americans as well as Iraqis were dying throughout the duration of those eight years, the reality is that there were two stages of the war, and they were as different as night and day. The first saw the massive open-field bank battles, the largest such battles since World War II. But the second stage of the Iraqi war consisted almost entirely of urban warfare, an often chaotic conflict where the enemy is often disguised and the objectives obscure. Americans were familiar with urban warfare, having encountered these types of conflicts most recently in Vietnam. In the most notorious of the Vietnam battles was the battle for the city of Way. The battle for Way cost over 200 American soldiers their life, and in the end was not victorious for the Americans. Now, 36 years after Way, the Americans found themselves in the same sort of conflict in Fallujah, another bloody battle for the Americans, this time costing nearly a 100 dead and a loss for the United States. Way and Fallujah are as far removed from a vision of an antiseptic war as is possible. These are bloody, brutal battles where one side may declare victory, but neither side wins. Urban war is primeval and mainly inconclusive. For Americans, urban warfare has always been costly, especially in terms of casualties, and Americans have often been victorious, although always at a tremendous cost. No one emerges from these kinds of conflicts unbloodied. Yet today, there are many in this country who think that the Russians should somehow sail through their urban battles in Ukraine. What the Russians are fighting today is just like the Americans fought in the Iraqi War Part II. Let's not think that Russia's capability in urban warfare is any reflection of their capability on other battlefields. Even if you assume that Russia is bogged down in the Ukrainian towns and cities, an assumption that I don't share, remember, the American performance in Fallujah did not reflect the performance of the sweeping American tank battles just a couple of years before. Well, 
It may be the largest economic brain trust in the world. The Federal Reserve Board employs over 400 economists to help present an incredibly diverse yet precise picture of our economy. Each economist has a PhD, a requirement no doubt for the position, and each Fed economist has a specific field of concentration. All of that analysis, plus an incredible amount of data collection and computer crunching, will go together to guide the Federal Open Market Committee in making its decision on interest rates later today. Now, the Fed's interest rate announcement will be flashed across computer screens worldwide. And for the first time in my memory, there's a real possibility that the Fed may raise interest rates by only one-eighth percent, a fractional hike that may indicate a lack of conviction on the part of the Fed. Normally, the Fed raises interest rates by one-quarter percent or more. Now, it's been ten and a half months that the Fed has been raising interest rates. A year ago, before the Fed started hiking rates, the Fed funds rate, the Fed's short-term interest rate, stood at just one-quarter percent. Today, it stands at four and a half percent and is likely to go even higher after today's announcement. Managing interest rates is the Fed's most powerful and most visible of all their monetary tools. Almost all the short-term interest rates are set by the Fed funds rate. Interbank loans, for instance, as well as large corporate financing, and perhaps even your credit card, as well as other financing, all follow the Fed funds rate. Currently, the Fed is raising interest rates in an effort to tamp down inflation. As interest rates rise, economic activity slows as borrowing cash becomes more expensive, and often, loans are more difficult to obtain. Most importantly, conventional economic thinking is that as the economy slows, so too will inflation. Now, it's been the conventional way of thinking for the Fed since their founding 110 years ago. And based on that thinking, the Fed is feeling pretty good about themselves right about now. As we've discussed, there are several measures on inflation. The better to keep those 400 economists busy, I suppose. The most popular measure of inflation is inflation at the consumer level, measured by the Consumer Price Index. According to this measure, since the Fed began raising interest rates, CPI inflation has declined about 2% per year. On the other hand, the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Inflation, or PCE inflation, declined about double that, or about 4% declined calculated yearly. So the Fed raises interest rates by 4%, and inflation, depending on how you measure it, declines somewhere between 2 and 4%. Now, ringing in your ear right about now is likely to be a lecture you heard from a science or math professor long ago, and it said that just because two events happen together does not mean that one caused the other. In other words, correlation is not causation. So let's take a look at our first chart. You'll notice that the Fed has been very consistent, raising interest rates each and every month, marching to higher and higher interest rates. But inflation has not behaved that way. Look at inflation. It's been all over the board. Big jumps in March and June, and a big drop in July. But it doesn't appear that there is any relationship at all between inflation and interest rates at least not in these short-term charts. In fact, they appear to be totally independent of one another. 
Perhaps there is some factor behind the scenes that does correlate better with inflation, a factor that we would expect to see rising when inflation rises and falling when inflation falls. Interchart 2. The Price of Gasoline Over the past year, there's been a close correlation between the price of gasoline and inflation. Gasoline and inflation both peaked together in March, June, and October of 2022. Every time that the price of gasoline went up, so too did inflation. I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you. You see it at the gas pump every time you fill up the family car. When gas prices increased, so too did inflation. Now, I'm not saying that this will always be the case, nor that gasoline alone is responsible for all inflation. In fact, our next bout of inflation, in my opinion, is likely to come from food prices. So what we are saying is that our economy has a systemic supply issue, and that lack of supply is driving prices, and therefore inflation, higher. Solve the supply issue, and we'd go much farther in solving the issue of inflation. Monetary tools such as interest rate management can be helpful in curbing certain types of inflation, but not supply price hikes. Just because you have a hammer, it doesn't mean that everything you see is a nail. And that's the value side for Wednesday, February 1st. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own. <laughs> you and I are living through the most significant monetary experiment in our country's history. Beginning in 2010, for the first time ever, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the nation's central banker, elected to drop interest rates to essentially zero. The concept came from then-chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke. Like all Fed chairmen up until then, Jerome Powell being the lone exception, Bernanke is an academic. His area of expertise, the Great Depression of the 20s and 30s. During that depression, we fell into a period of deflation, a time when the price of everything fell, from stocks to real estate to manufactured goods. Prices continued to spiral down and down. Now, you might think that lower prices are a good thing. The problem arises when the price a store can sell its items don't meet their production costs. Stores and factories cannot operate at a loss. So as the Depression continued, thousands of businesses and shops simply closed their doors, with the result that millions were thrown out of work. Bernanke, the academic, spent much of his teaching and research focusing on how the central bank should react in modern America if a similar situation would arise. In his most famous speech before he was appointed Fed chairman in 2006, Bernanke proposed that should we get into a deflationary spiral, then the central bank should respond by flooding the financial systems with cash. They should throw cash at the market like out of a helicopter. <laughs> Well, you can imagine, that created a real stir on Wall Street. Helicopter money became the meme on the street for weeks. Everyone was talking about how this crazy member of the Fed, and he was by then, was proposing helicopter money. Wall Street thought it was a joke. 
Little did we know that the joke was on us, as a year later Ben Bernanke was nominated by George W. Bush to be the head of the Federal Reserve, and two years after that he would put his most radical concepts all to work, namely zero interest rates. Now, ZIRP, or Zero Interest Rate Policy, as it became known, was so off the wall that few expected it to last. This policy ran counter to some of the basic tenets of our financial systems. Namely, it entirely negated the idea that savers and investors ought to be compensated for placing their money in a savings account, money market fund, or other type of passive savings. When interest rates went to zero, savers were essentially painted out of the picture. In fact, the entire basis of corporate financing changed. Whereas before, corporate CEOs had to make a choice between equity and debt financing, and generally speaking, equity financing was considered the cheaper alternative because shareholders did not require compensation, while in debt financing, the corporation always had to pay interest. But when interest goes to zero, the cost of debt financing also goes to near zero. The result has been that corporate America has taken on debt as a principal method of capitalizing their companies. Now, real estate perhaps is the most leveraged of all investments, and it boomed. With 30-year mortgages below 3% until just a few months ago, real estate has appreciated like never before. And of course, With these low interest rates, they took away the pain from our exploding government debt, with U.S. Treasuries, even at the long end of maturities, quoted two years ago below 1.5%, suddenly the politicians in Washington could spend nearly as much as they want with little cost. The fact that our nation's leaders have exceeded all reasonable expectations in this regard is a disgrace. Now, yesterday's action by the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates by a quarter percent to 4.75 finally brought interest rates above current inflation, thus creating a real interest rate. It's not the first time we've tried. In 2016, the Fed also tried raising interest rates, only to be driven back down by the pandemic, when once again interest rates were sent to zero. How will the Fed do this time? It's an open question. No one really knows. However, if you listen to most of the commentators yesterday, you heard the phrase terminal rate used a lot. By terminal rate, Wall Street means the last, highest interest rate that the Fed will achieve in this interest rate cycle. And just a cursory look around the street tells us that many are predicting that the Fed is very close to halting its rate hikes. Over at the mortgage markets, the rate for 30-year mortgages have already begun to head lower. The same thing in the U.S. Treasury markets. The 30-year Treasury bond also has a lower yield currently. These are both giant markets, and it's extremely rare for them to trade against the Fed in such a bold manner. I don't ever remember mortgages and long-end treasuries taking such a counter position to the Fed. This is a very big tell. Then there's the question of how the overall economy is performing. The Fed cannot afford to send this nation into recession by raising interest rates too far. 
the last four economic reports the Fed received before yesterday's interest rate decision showed that first, consumer confidence is declining, home prices are declining, the purchasing manager's index is declining, and the number of job openings are increasing. Hardly the background of a strong and growing economy. You may have read about all the layoffs that are occurring in the tech industry. Most of the industry leaders have begun sending pink slips to their workers in an effort to cut costs. Conspicuously absent, however, has been Apple Computer, which to date has not let anyone go. Here may be one reason why. Now, we're all familiar with the supply chain. That's the series of steps from a production facility, usually in Asia, to the end user, usually in America. It's a process that began back in the 1950s when labels that read Made in Japan began to appear. Back then, we considered such items an oddity. Didn't American factories make all the Americans could want? Went that thinking. Over the years, Americans became more and more accustomed to these overseas products, and now we couldn't live without them. Over the past several years, America has purchased from its overseas suppliers somewhere between $800 billion and a $1 trillion per year more in overseas goods than we sold to them. Offshore production dominates American markets in such fields as pharmaceutical compounding, electronic production, and certain auto segments. Now, perhaps the most widely recognized of all these offshore products are the phones and electronic products by Apple Computer, one of the world's largest multinational companies. In the Apple business model, products are designed and marketed from their offices here in America, while their products are actually manufactured, or to use Apple's terms, assembled, in Asia. The most profitable and famous of all the Apple products is the iPhone, and it's the iPhone which provides the best insight into Apple's business model. The iPhone was designed by John Ivey and his team back in the early 2000s and first came to the market in 2007. Sleek, simple, and straightforward, the iPhone took the American market by storm, where, since the very beginning, it has been the dominant smartphone product. The loyal customers for this product are legion, and I'm sure you know, as I do, several friends or family who simply must have the latest model each time a new iPhone is released. What we've just described is the sum total of the American-based portion of Apple. Design and marketing, that's it. Think about the incredible leverage here. Just a relatively few people working in the U.S., Apple administration, Apple management, and Apple marketing departments, as well as the design department, and I'm discounting those employees at the Apple stores as they do add to headcount, but I don't think they are an essential part of the Apple business model and certainly came into the business model relatively recently. Overall, Apple has one of the lowest corporate profiles of any major corporations. By any measure, the number of American-based workers is extremely small compared to the amount of annual product. It's because of these relatively few American-based workers that Apple has not yet appeared on the list of high-tech companies who are laying people off. The short answer? The vast number of workers who assemble the iPhone don't work for Apple. Shocking, I know. 
Now, Professor Yi Zhang at the State University of New York in Buffalo has called the way that Apple assembles the iPhone gig manufacturing. It's a concept that's very similar to what we call independent contractors. Here in the States, when we hire a plumber or repairman, we're only hiring a temporary employee. The plumber or repairman agrees to perform a certain task, and we agree to pay them a stipulated payment for that job. That's exactly how most of the workers for Apple work. Only they don't really work for Apple. They work for an intermediate. Now, the largest iPhone factory in the world is located in the city of Xinjiang, China. The plant itself takes up over 5,000 square kilometers and employs thousands upon thousands of workers. It makes iPhones, but not in an Apple plant. The plant is owned and run by Foxconn, a Taiwanese company that contracts with Apple to manufacture iPhones. And taking it one step further, the workers who work at the iPhone plant don't work for Foxconn. They are independent contractors, those gig workers that Professor Dong talks about. They come to the plant, do their closely watched job, and get paid each month. Average compensation at the iPhone plant is $324 per month. Because iPhone sales are highly seasonable, most sales occur in the three months around year-end holidays. Many workers are simply let go at the end of that high sales period. Remember, these are not layoffs. They're simply gig workers who no longer have work to do. And besides, this isn't Apple letting them go. It's Foxconn. Apple has found the way around all those American rules, regulations, and benefits. There is no unemployment benefit for gig workers, little or no insurance, no OSHA, no union, no retirement fund, and on and on. Apple, along with Nike and most of the other multinational companies, has devised a virtual manufacturing process. It's where components and raw materials are brought together, but the human factor is shipped off to someone else. It is a remarkable construct, one made possible with the advent of modern logistics. And it's the reason that Apple Computer may not lay off anyone. And that's the value side for Friday, February 3rd. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own. 